Well, turn with me in your Bibles to the book of, of Matthew, Matthew chapter 14, Matthew 14, 22 to 36. This has uh, been a five-part sermon series through chapter, uh, the end of chapter 13 and all of 14, reactions to Jesus' person, His claims, the truth about who He is, and uh, as I am want to do at times, I, I like to, at seasonal breaks, take a turn and, and consider other portions of the Scripture so that we, uh, we do get a variety of, of God's Word. And uh, in the fall, I'm planning to uh, begin a, a series up through Thanksgiving uh, from the book of Exodus, and I'm looking forward to um, teaching through that book. Um, a few years ago, I taught in sections through the book of Genesis. So, I'm, I'm coming back uh, now to, to pick up that story of what, what happened to, what, what was the reason that uh, Israel was stuck in Egypt, and uh, what was their God doing uh, for 400 years? Did God not know what His people were doing and going through? Well, the bottom line is that God knew, and He knows, and I think that's an important message for us even today. Uh, that God knows His people, and I want to encourage us with uh, considering of that uh, in weeks to come. So, here we are, Matthew. I hope you turned in your Bible to uh, uh, this text and follow along. I'm going to read these verses. You can turn to 927 in the Red Pew Bible as well, and invite you to, to look at that. Uh, verse 22, Immediately, he made the disciples get into the boat and go, go before him to the other side while he dismissed the crowds. And after he dismissed the crowds, he went up the mountain by himself to pray. And when evening came, he was alone. But the boat by this time was a long way away from land, beaten by the waves, for the wind was against them. And in the fourth watch of the night, he came to them walking on the sea. But when the disciples saw him walking on the sea, they were terrified and said, it is a ghost. And they cried out in fear. But immediately Jesus spoke to them saying, take heart, it is I. Do not be afraid. And Peter answered him, Lord, if it is you, command me to come to you on the water. He said, come. So Peter got out of the boat, walked on the water, and came to Jesus. But when he saw the wind, he was afraid and began to sink. He cried out, Lord, save me. And Jesus immediately reached out his hand, took hold of him, saying to him, O you of little faith, why did you doubt? And when they got into the boat, the wind ceased, and those in the boat worshipped him, saying, Truly, you are the Son of God. And when they had crossed over, they came to the land of Gennesaret. And when the men of that place recognized him, they sent around to that, all that region and brought to him all who were sick and implored him that they might only touch the fringe of his garment. And as many as touched it were made well. I don't know if you realize it, but the material world sticks to us like conjunctivitis discharge. Isn't that a pleasant thought? 
When was the last time you had pink eye? It was a pleasant experience, no? No, it was not a pleasant experience. That morning mucus crust makes opening your eyelids difficult. You know, the upside of those goopy's eyes is that you're actually permitted to stay home from school. Uh, if you can get that going, that's a good deal. But now that you can visualize the stickiness of conjunctivitis, I want you to associate that purposely with the material world. It can blind you to the one, the true, the good, the Lord Jesus Christ, who is sovereign over all. The eye throughout Scripture is a metaphor for that inward eye that we have. Oh, yes, we have physical eyes, but we also have an inward eye that perceives what's going on in the world. At the center of the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus said this, that the eye is the lamp of the body. So, if your eye is healthy, your whole body will be full of light. But if your eye is bad, your whole eye will be full of darkness. Now, as you read John's gospel, you'll see how a blind man becomes an object lesson of this truth. There was a blind man who was, who was kicked out of the synagogue after Jesus had healed him of his blindness. Yet the Jews were jealous of Jesus and their inward eye was blind to who he was. And their bitterness and their resentment and their hatred caused them to not see Jesus for who he was. How ironic that a former blind man can see what those who have physical eyes to see cannot see. Paul was one of those who had an inward eye that was blinded. And it took a major interaction on the road to Damascus, he going to arrest Christians of all things, purposed to bring them back to Jerusalem to have them put into prison and stand trial for claiming that Jesus was the Messiah. Well, on that road to Damascus, he had this blinding take place, and he suddenly was met face to face with his Lord and Savior. And in the process of his healing, as the story goes, and you'll know the story, that a man touched his, his eyes and, as it were, scales fell off of his eyes, and then he was able to physically see again as an illustration of his conversion. I think it's important to realize that, that as Christians, yes, we, we can be converted, we can believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, we believe that He is the way, the truth, and the life. But that doesn't mean that we won't get conjunctivitis of the heart. There are times where the cares of life become like that sticky in our eyes, and we're not really seeing the world properly as we ought to. And you would think that the disciples themselves would have learned the feeding of the 5,000 should have taught them that the material world was nothing to hold on to tightly, and they were very, very slow to, to, to wipe away the crust from their eyes. They have an inward conjunctivitis. And the more they rub, the more it gets worse. And they need Jesus. They need Jesus to, to heal their inward eye and, 
And what medicine does Jesus use? Jesus uses the material world to shake the junk out of their eyes so that their inward hearts can see Him for who He is. And I want to take from this text that Jesus intentionally sends waves to His children to heal them, to heal their inward eyes so that they might see Him properly as He truly is the Son of God. He is the living Son of God. Now, Matthew pairs these two incidents, incidents that we're going to look at. There's kind of like a wind-down. There's like a wind-down process. He's, he's, we've seen four or three other instances. This is the fourth and then the fifth. But the last instance is really s- small. It's very concise. And this is his style. Matthew often groups little short stories together, and the last one tends to be the shorter of all of them signaling that he's about ready to change his focus again. And we've already come across some of these illustrations. Remember when we were in Nazareth? In Nazareth, we saw the hard-hearted soil of his family and community that wouldn't accept him as the true living God, the Messiah who is to come. And then we went into Herod's courtroom, and there was another kind of hardness that came out of the, the world and the sensuality in the world, And that hardness there, he refused to see the truth about John or Jesus. And then we come to the disciples, and you see them worried about the cares of the world, and the cares of the world are are causing them to get anxious, and they're they're worried about how they're going to feed all these people. Now we come to, to another instance in which the disciples not only display the thorny soil, they also display the stony soil. They, 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 they're under a weight of like the, the world is pressing in on them and they're tempted to cash, they de- they're cashing out. They're not trusting in, in Jesus. Now, the disciples, remarkably, they, dis- they display two kinds of soils. And I think that's important to take note because when you come to Jesus Christ and you find him as your Lord and Savior, it's not only one issue that needs Jesus to heal us from. Jesus needs to heal us from all kinds of diseases. We may not have just conjunctivitis. We might have parasites. We might have worms, even, that need to be taken out. I'm intentionally being gross here this morning because I want you to feel the weight of this material world. It is gross in comparison to the greatness of our Lord Jesus Christ. And Jesus will use the material world, the things that we put our hope and trust in and think that there we will have what we need, our security. Christ will take those things and make them a a terror to you so that you will look to Him. So Jesus, in this first instance, I believe He's using the material world that they have put their faith and trust in and using it in the end to heal them and to show them that they desperately need him. Now, verse 22 to 23, we're going to kind of walk through this first incident uh, pretty quickly. Verse 22, um, we'll just read these words again. Immediately, he made the disciples get into the boat and go before him to the other side while he dismissed the crowds. And after he had dismissed the crowds, he went up on the mountain by himself to pray. 
And when evening had come, he was alone. Now, I see here Jesus getting relief from the material world. He's getting relief. This is something that he, he wanted to have. When he went over to the other side, originally this is what he wanted. But when he got there, there was, there was a press of people upon him and needs, and he couldn't. So what he does, he, he says he immediately he made the disciples get into a boat, and that's pretty strong language. Uh, and there's kind of like two things happening here. Uh, first, what's happening is Jesus is commanding his, his followers to do something that they don't immediately desire to do, to go off on their own. And in this instance, the disciples are to be commended because they show an obedient and submissive response to their teacher. Now, they haven't got everything together, but at least in this instance, they're responding by obedience. And indeed, we would be very well off to follow their example. You know, we don't really truly trust God if we're not willing to submit ourselves to Him, even if we don't understand what's going on. Even though our feelings might even be opposed to what we've been asked to do, there is always a best reason for everything that God asks of us to do. But often He conceals His reasons, and He doesn't fully reveal everything to us immediately. And so, if, if you have to have every detail of your future mapped out before you say, yes, Lord, then you're in an act of disobedience. It might be that you don't really love Him as much as you think because you can't trust Him with what He will bring your way. Why does Jesus do this? I believe He does this to teach us that we are not to be wise in ourselves, that we are to trust Him completely. But there is also a second thing happening here. And Jesus, and it's relative to His desire, He has an unfulfilled desire. He's, I think He's, he's hangry. He's hangry for alone time. Sorry to put it in those terms, but he's desperate. He's, 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 I don't know if you, 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 you know anyone in your life that's like kind of like introverted and they, they, want, they want alone time. Sometimes they will tell us politely or not politely sometimes that they need space. But the reality is Jesus needs space. He needs time to be alone so that He can speak freely from the heart to His heavenly Father. Now, some kids get hangry, they get hungry, they get so hungry, they get angry, and they don't even realize what's going on. Now, I don't mean in dis disrespect to the Lord Jesus Christ, but He's desperate here for time to be with His heavenly Father. And by, by sending His disciples off in a boat, they become a decoy, they become like, uh, like, like the, they the crowds can chase the boat now to the other side, and now Jesus is alone, and He's putting together a plan. And I'm not going to reteach this point. I, I made a pretty strong point last Sunday about how important it is to block out time, to make sure that you're spending alone time with the Lord yourself, following Christ's example. I'm not going to re-preach that point, but I simply want to ask you this. Are you starting to put together a plan? 
Are you a doer of the word or are you a hearer only? What's stopping you? The scriptures were taught, you heard them, and just like the disciples, you need now to obey them. It's now time to obey the Lord Jesus Christ and make time for Him alone. Solitude has a very powerful influence. It's the place where you can open your heart freely to the Lord and just pour it out. Do you have anxieties? Do you have fears? Then tell it to Jesus. He is a friend who is near and wants to hear everything that you're going through. Pour out your heart. Work hard to set yourself free. Block out that time. Shut that phone off. Make that time. Because the Word of God is a precious seed. It is a precious seed, and you need to get to it. You need the water of prayer to, to flow upon the Word and see what Jesus will do. See what God will do inside of your heart. Now, Jesus also wants relief. He wants to get away from the material world, but Jesus also is stressing. He's doing this on purpose. He stresses the disciples with the material world because they haven't learned yet. Verse 24 Verse 24 says, But the boat by this time was a long way from the land, beaten by the waves, for the wind was against him. Now, the disciples, only a third of them were really experienced seafaring men. The others probably could just simply be on an oar. That's probably all they were good for. And uh, Jesus compelling them to go across the other side really put them in a vulnerable position, and he knew full well that they were going to experience a crisis while they were out there. And Jesus permitted his disciples to be tossed about. And he did this on purpose to stress them that they might fix their hearts on the eternal and to fix their inward eye. So, the way Matthew tells this, as it appears to me, Jesus, I think, was really fully aware of the trauma that was going on because it's really remarkable the way he, he talks about it. He transitions very quickly. Look at verse 23. Um, After he dismissed the crowds, he went up on the mountain by himself to pray. When evening came, he was there alone, and that switch quick but the boat at this time was a long way from land. It seems to indicate that, and, and, and the, the circumstances of the storm are there, and it seems to indicate that Matthew was aware that Jesus knew what was going on while he was even praying to his heavenly Father. And so, he got up from his prayer and went out on the water to get them and to rescue them. Now, This is incidentally the second time a boat miracle has occurred. We've already looked at one of these in the book of Matthew already, and uh, I don't know, do you remember what was going on in the boat the last time? Jesus was asleep in the boat. This time, Jesus is away from the boat, 
But I want to ask, does that make any difference? Does it make any difference where Jesus is, whether he's in the boat asleep or he's away from the boat? No, it doesn't make any difference. In fact, the great prophet Elijah in the Old Testament mocked the prophets of Baal with these invectives. He mocked the false gods by saying, cry aloud, for if he is a god, either he's musing or he's relieving himself or he's on a journey or perhaps he's asleep and must be awakened. And as I was considering the irony of what Jesus does here in the situation that's going in hand and realizing that when the chips are down, if your God is the material world, He's going to let you down every single time. And you can cut yourself, and you can express just how desperate you are, and you can run to therapists, and you can run to all this other stuff, but if your God is not the true and living God, it's going to let you down. It's not that the disciples don't know that God is the true and living God on an intellectual basis, but they're not able to put it into practice because the crust that's there on the inside. The material world is still plaguing them, and they're trying to still hold on to it. It's like it's still crusty. Now, Mark's gospel is even more explicit than Matthew's gospel, and Matthew is harsher to the disciples. In fact, uh, Mark says they were utterly astounded when, 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 the, when, the, when the storm ceased or when Jesus got into the boat. And Mark says this, for they did not understand about the loaves, but that their hearts were hardened. That's an explicit commentary that affirms this interpretation that I'm providing for you this morning. The material world was making it hard for the disciples to see who Jesus was, and Jesus then takes the God that they were trusting in, maybe it was their ability to be seafaring men, and says, okay, you want to put your trust in that? I'll shake you so you don't trust that anymore. You see, when you set your heart on this material world, and you make it its highest, make, it, make this material world the highest pursuit to the exclusion of God and time in His Word or being in His house or being in prayer, He's going he's gonna to let you experience difficulty to let you know that you can't make it out there on your own. You need Him with you. Why would Jesus do that? I know we live in an era of gentle parenting. It might sound a little rough, but the reality is that Jesus loves you, and He doesn't want you to hold on to this world. He's willing to slap your hand and tell you no, and He's willing to let you suffer a little while until you figure it out but he does this because he loves you. He would rather you lose an eye, he would rather you lose a hand than to be cast body and soul into hell forever. He loves you that much. Jesus calls us 
also to trust His absolute authority over the material world. Verse 25 and 20 through 27 says, And in the fourth watch of the night He came to them walking on the sea. But when the disciples saw Him walking on the sea, they were terrified. And they said, It's a ghost. And they cried out in fear. But immediately Jesus spoke to them saying, Take heart, it is I do not be afraid. Their senses are overwhelmed. They're absolutely terrified. But there's something similar to the way they respond to seeing Jesus that's very similar to the way Herod responded when he heard that Jesus was doing great miracles. You remember that? Herod had thought Jesus was part of the paranormal, a ghost of John the Baptist, whom he had wrongfully killed. Now, I want you to know that there is a paranormal. Don't get me wrong, there is demons that are true and real in the world. However, their first instinct was in the wrong direction. They went in the wrong direction because their heart was divided They were trying to hold on to the material world and not allow themselves to embrace the truth about who Jesus is. And they were not fully connecting and making this truth theirs. Now, Jesus provided for them, and that's all well and good. But I want to drive home the, the significance of the absolute authority of Jesus over the created world. The Jesus, Jesus here provides comfort through words and says, you know, take heart. It is I. Do not be afraid. Those are beautiful words. We need to hear those words. But maybe we don't even understand what those words are. In the very center, that little phrase, it is I, is a remarkable statement of his identity as Jehovah of the Old Testament. That short little phrase, it is I, is literally, in the Greek, as it corresponds to the Hebrew, it's literally, I am. Now, if you were a Greek speaker and you were hearing these words and you were familiar with the Torah and you knew the Old Testament, and when you came to the the words ego and me, that would trigger in your mind Exodus 3.14, where Moses says to God, "If, if I come to the people of Israel and say to them, The God of your fathers has sent me to you, and they asked me, what is his name? What shall I say to them? And God said to Moses, I am who I am. Who is Jesus? Who is he? He is the radiance of the glory and the exact imprint of the image of his nature. And he upholds the universe by the word of his power. You know, shortly after the experience here in subsequent chapters, Jesus becomes transfigured before their, their very eyes. And his, his, his pores begin to emit light, and his hair follicles start to radiate, and his face begins to shine like the sun. It becomes so blinding you can't even look upon it. That's who Jesus is. 
He is the creator God and the sustainer of everything. You know, it's very common for people to say, I like to think of God as, and fill in the blank, upon their own experience of what they would prefer God to be. But the reality is, Jesus is not, he's not who you think he is. He is who he says he is. He is the living one. He is the resurrected Lord and Savior upon whom all eyes need to turn and repent and believe and accept Him as the way, the truth, and the life. And Christians, we can forget. We can allow the material world to crust up the inner eye, and we, by our heart, don't see Jesus for who He is. We have to grab hold. We have to grab hold of the truth that He is the living one. He is the ever-existent one. He is the great I am, and that should move and change our hearts. Well, Jesus commands us to follow Him in this material world. We, we, we can't just like suddenly like leave this material world. We have to live in it, and I believe that Peter getting out on the water gives us a, an example of what that, that is spiritually. We see it physically in action. We see in verse uh, 28, excuse me, verse 31, Jesus, excuse me, I, I think I might have skipped over myself. <coughs> excuse me, verse 28, I have the wrong reference down. Peter answered him, Lord, if it is you, command me to come to you on the water. He said, come. So Peter got out of the boat and walked in the water and came to Jesus. But when he saw the wind, he was afraid and began to sink. And he cried out, Lord, save me. There was this request, but then there was a waiting for a command. And Jesus actually followed through and made a command. There is an interpretive question here. Is Peter asking wrongly? Is it inappropriate for him to test God, as it were? That is a possibility. But I think that there's greater weight here in that there is some, there is some faint ember of trust oriented towards Jesus. Because he says, command me to come to you. He wants to come he wants to believe that this is Jesus. In other words, he's willing to, to wait and be obedient to hear what Jesus would tell him to do, just as he had obeyed getting into the boat. Maybe he didn't want to get in the boat, but I, he had to get in the boat. But here he is. You know, Jesus could have said, yes, it is I. You stay in that boat, and by the time I get to that boat, everything will be okay but he doesn't. Rather, he commands Peter, commands him to follow him despite the overwhelming obstacles that were in the material world around him, the laws of physics being one of them. I mean, gravity still is a law of gravity. It's, it's still a physical law, right? Well, in our case, following Jesus in the material world, we live with certain laws too, laws like decay, Laws like a world that's filled with sin. And we live around people who are sinners. And Jesus commands us to follow Him 
despite the laws of sin and death that surround us. They may be even inside of us. And Jesus commands us to walk on the water, as it were, to live above the sin-filled ambitions of this world. For example, Jesus calls men to guard their eyes and hearts, to live exclusively for one woman. But we live in a material world, Jesus. That's impossible. It's impossible as walking on water. Jesus calls us to love all men as ourselves. Yeah, but every time I think about so-and-so, I get angry, I get resentful, I get embittered. Everywhere I go, there she is. Well, that's just the wind and the waves. We're living in a fallen world. And what Peter does is he shows us the way to live. He says, as he's sinking, save me. Save me. And Jesus gives to us what he commands in this material world. He gives us everything that we need so that we can live for him. Verse 31 to 33, we read, Jesus immediately reached out his hand and took hold of him, saying to him, Oh, you of little faith, why did you doubt? And when they got into the boat, the wind ceased. And those in the boat worshipped him, saying, Truly, you are the Son of God. Immediately, the prayer is, Put out, save me. And immediately, his hand goes down and pulls him up and puts him out on the water again. You know, this is also a lesson that moral ability doesn't come from within. It comes from the Holy Spirit, and He places it within us so that we are able to obey His commands. It doesn't naturally reside within. St. Augustine, in his confessions, was frustrated by his own lack of his own lack of ability. He finally cried out like Peter in his confessions. He said, command what you will and then give what you command. And if we are tempted to look within ourselves for the resources, for our moral inability, that's a conjunctivitis of the soul. Peter is so much like the the fourth soul, the fourth soil, excuse me, He's like this, he's got rocks, and he's, he's sinking, and he's about ready to die, and he's a little mixture of faith and un, un, unfaith, and his inward eye was, was destroying him, it was crushing him. Peter, at this point, would come to learn what Paul said in 1 Corinthians 10, let anyone who thinks that he stands take, take heed lest he falls. If you ever think that you can stand on your own two feet, you're going to fall. Pride is conjunctivitis of the soul. And why do we keep falling? It could be that we still have too much pride. Jesus sends waves to heal our inward 
eye. Jesus freely heals, and He heals those who come humbly. This last incident is really a concluding thought. I'm not going to give it more time than Matthew gives it this morning. But Jesus, in this instance, shows us what the good soil looks like. Jesus freely heals all who are willing to embrace Him by faith, by simple childlike faith. Uh, the men of the place, they get to the other side, Gennesaret, they, 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 they see, they recognize who this is, and then all of a sudden everyone's coming and they start to beg, they're starting to, you know, beg him to simply let, let them touch the, the fringe of his garment. This last example is so short on purpose, in fact, this little phrase, touch the hem of his garment, is a trigger phrase to call our minds back to something that happened earlier in the book in which Jesus was touched by a woman in a crowd who she thought, if I could just touch the fringe of His garment, then I would be healed. And Matthew is just quick shorthand telling you, okay, I can't go back and retell you that story again, but this is the essence. This is the essence of what a good soil looks like. It's someone who knows that they have no place inside the kingdom of God. Many others are worthy to go ahead of me. But if I could just touch, if I could just touch that hem, then I would be made whole. She knows what she needs, and she's humble, and she's ready to receive, and she's going to hold on to Jesus, and she's going to get her healing. See, Jesus will also reach out and hold you if you reach out and try to take hold of His fringe. He will heal you so that you can rise above the material world and you can forgive those who have hurt you. He will heal you of lust. He will make sure that anger does not destroy and define you. Why does Jesus do this? Because He loves you, and He wants what's best for you. I know we live in Wayne County, and it is a rocky soil. And sometimes we, Wayne County people, can be like the geography. We can be rocky too. We love our independence. We love our rural but we can also be damaged and be sick and have hardness of heart. We desperately need the humility that says, just let me touch the hem of His garment. Jesus sends waves to heal our inward eyes. Let's pray.